Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning for your word. Pray that Christ would be honored, you would be glorified, and we would be satisfied in you as we look at how your gospel appears in Christ. So help us and cause us to understand and learn and grow so we would become more obedient for your glory and for the joy that we want in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. Only you can do this, so we trust and depend on your spirit to work. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about the power of the gospel, it tends to be focused on our justification, right? Like, when we talk about the power of the gospel, we think Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the grave, and if we believe that, then we'll be saved, and that's the power of the gospel, which is true, but how does that power, how does that gospel power continue after we're saved? Well, we would say that The continuation of gospel power after we're justified would be that we share that gospel with other people and they would get saved and we would see the continuation of the power of the gospel work in other people's lives. So we tend to think of the power of the gospel working in our justification. Really only within our justification we think of the gospel because when we think of the gospel We tend to think life, death, resurrection. But the power of the gospel extends eternally into our sanctification and also into our eternal glorification. And that gospel power showed up at the appearing of Christ, at his birth. Meaning the appearing of Christ was the appearing of the gospel. God didn't just save us. He continues to save us. Now, that language of salvation being a continual thing probably feels a little uncomfortable if you understand the effectiveness of the gospel. That the gospel saved us when we believed our salvation was secured. We aren't being saved. We are saved. Well, both of those things are true, though. So the Bible teaches us both things, that we are saved that our salvation is secured, and that we are being saved. And again, this comes back to something we talk about often, which is when we use the word saved, we have to specify which element of salvation we're talking about. We tend to think of the gospel being about its power to justify us, and we often don't think about the gospel's power in our sanctification, and we see this idea of the gospel continuing to save us in 1 Corinthians 1.18. These next two verses I give you are not on the PowerPoint. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. So the power of God, and what is God? God is the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news What's the good news? That we get God, God is the gospel. So the power of God continues to save us. Meaning justification has already been secured 
and God continues his salvation work in our sanctification. So he's not saying that, ah, oh, you're kind of saved, but I'll finish saving you later. That's not the language that we use. The idea of continual salvation means continued sanctification after justification is solidified. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that's past tense, which you received, that's past tense, in which you stand, that's present tense, and by which you are being saved. If, now it's a condition, you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So that's clearly talking about sanctification because it has that conditional phrase, if you continue. And so our salvation, we need to think of, of we need to think of our salvation in three ways, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Right? And and we then need to understand that the power of the gospel doesn't just work in our justification. It continues to work in our sanctification. And that is essentially where Paul is going to go with 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 today. So we're in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1. And Paul writes, Therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So here we find our application right at the beginning of the text. And this is unusual because oftentimes in scripture we find reasoning and foundational principles. And then from those foundational principles come applicable realities. When Paul writes his letters, it's usually like doctrine, doctrine, doctrine for half of it. And then the next half is like application, instruction, and clarity about how to function as Christians and as the church. Understanding those fundamental principles that he had already established in doctrine. So usually it's like foundational truths and then application of those truths in the way the church operates, in the way the Christian lives. But in this text, it's backwards. Paul starts with application. He starts with the command. This is how you should live your life. And then in verses 9 and 10, he's going to explain why. And the why is going to be because of the gospel. So we're going to look at what the gospel looks like in relationship to this immediate application or command. And the command for us is that we are to apply this idea that we should not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, which means do not be ashamed of the gospel. We find this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 as well, not to be ashamed of the gospel. So where does shame come from? Shame is a product of fear. Why do we feel ashamed? Because we fear what people will think of us or we fear what God will think of us or we fear what will happen to us if we reveal that thing of which we are ashamed. So to be ashamed of the gospel means we fear something other than God whom we are commanded to fear above all else. And that shame comes from fear. That shame that comes from fear not only prevents us from sharing the gospel with the lost, but it deters us from obedience and i'll explain in some ways i think it is actually kind of easy for most christians to obey god Uh, most of us are probably aware of just a couple of sins that are maybe most prominent in our lives and we often work hard at growing in those specific areas and that's great 
And a lot of Christians that I know, some of you here, most of you here, I think would be able to identify, eh, you know, these are the sins that I see most prominently happening in my life, and I'm aware of them, and I work hard to not sin and to do what's right and have the right attitude or perspective or heart condition or whatever, or the right thought process. And so in, though, in that if you kind of frame it that way, obedience is kind of easy in the sense that because we have Christ, we're now capable of recognizing where our sin is and dealing with it. And that's fantastic. That's the benefit of knowing Christ. But notice what Paul further instructs in verse 8. Because I don't think this is easy. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The command is not only do not be ashamed of the gospel, but also includes the command that we suffer for the gospel. Now, suffering is not something we can impose on ourselves. So this idea that we are commanded to suffer is a very unique command because we can't fulfill this command by intentionally making ourselves suffer just for the sake of suffering and then calling that obedience. I mean, if, if, if suffering was the goal, if suffering was the command, really, that, hey, make sure you suffer for the gospel, then I would just pull out a knife and pop all my tires and then walk back in here and be like, huh, my tires are all flat, suffering for Jesus. And then you guys would be like, wow, he's so holy and obedient. And that would be, I mean, think about the implications of that. If our entire aim was just to suffer, we could create a ton of suffering in our own lives on purpose. Think about how much suffering you go through already in life and you don't try to get it. All of us are running from suffering more than anything, certainly not running to it. And I don't think that Paul is, in, is, is demanding, I don't think that God is demanding at all that like the aim that you are going for is that you suffer. That's what I want. I just want you to suffer. That's not the heart of what is being commanded here. We can face what I call self-induced suffering. And that self-induced suffering is going to come from your own sin. But Paul obviously would not command us to sin so that we could suffer. Meaning this suffering must be referring to a suffering that comes from righteousness. Righteous suffering is always... By definition, someone else's act of sin or evil against you, which causes your hardship or your suffering. So the command to suffer is not a command to intentionally suffer, meaning suffering isn't the aim, but rather it is a command to obey and is a command to sacrifice, knowing that sacrifice produces suffering as our obedience often produces a rebuttal of sin and evil from the world that is cast upon us for our righteousness. Essentially what Paul is saying is suffering is so biblically accurate to be the product of your righteousness that if you do what is right, if you obey, if you are convicted and live according to those biblical convictions, you will do what's right, and the world will hate what's right, and you will suffer for it, probably from, or, or it has to be, from evil people or sinful people 
performing or acting out some sort of sin or evil against you producing your suffering. So the aim isn't the suffering. The aim is righteousness. So really what Paul's commanding us to do is obey. Knowing that the product of obedience will be suffering. So this text is less about being ashamed of the gospel by not sharing the gospel, which by the way, if you don't share the gospel, that's disobedience. So if we're talking about obedience, sharing the gospel is part of that obedience. Evangelism is part of that obedience. Spreading the love of Jesus across the world is part of that obedience. We're commanded as a church to make disciples. We're commanded by the church to love lost people. We're commanded by Jesus, I said by the church, we're commanded as the church by Jesus to have compassion and broken hearts for lost people who don't know him. To reach out to lost people who don't know Jesus and to to give to them hope by sharing with them and telling them about the love of our Savior, the sacrifice of Jesus to pay for their sins by telling them that they are sinners, by reminding them, not reminding them, telling them, maybe for the first time, that they have a problem and it needs fixing. If you, speaking of flat tires, if you came to me today and said, hey, I got four brand new tires, do you want them? I'd be like, no, I'm good. I have four tires. I don't need four new tires. But then if you pulled out a knife and popped all four of my tires and said, now do you want the new tires? I'd be like, well, yeah, I kind of need them now. So what, what's the difference between those two things? One, but in both cases, there's a, something better that is offered to you. But only when your tires are flat do you so desperately need that solution. Only when, you're, when you have a problem and you're aware of the problem, does the solution look so much more appetizing and better. So Francis Schaeffer was once asked how if he was given an hour with someone, I, don't, I think an hour on a plane or an hour on a train with someone and you were to share the gospel, how would you spend that hour? And he said, I'd spend 45 minutes on the problem and 15 minutes on the solution. Because what good is Jesus to someone who doesn't know they need him? The world needs to know that they're lost. They don't even know they're lost. You have to show them the truth. And by showing them the truth, they can realize they're lost, recognize their sin. That doesn't mean we go up to people and share the gospel with them and say, hey, did you know you're a wicked sinner and you're going to hell? Like, there's tact that's involved in our approach with people, but helping them understand that they have a sin problem that is going to be met by a holy God who refuses to accept their sin nature and will not just accept them as good people and will not just forget their sin because they did some what they think are good things, but that God only accepts perfection, which is only found in Christ, and they need to know that. So that itself is an act of obedience, to share that gospel with people. And what Paul is really aiming at is not, don't be ashamed of the gospel by not sharing it with people. What he's saying is don't be ashamed of the gospel to not put in the continual effort to be obedient to the gospel. And as we grow, so will our convictions about biblical obedience. And as our convictions grow and we mature in our ability to stand strong upon our biblical convictions, the world's convictions, which are growing away from our convictions, will eventually come to an impasse, and our convictions will clash with the world's convictions, producing their evil persecution on us, which will result in our suffering. The result of suffering is not the aim. Righteousness is the aim. Obedience is the aim. But Paul is so sure that obedience will produce suffering that his command is for us to suffer for the gospel. 
which is just another way of saying be obedient, continue in obedience to the gospel. Now, if this idea of your continued obedience will produce suffering because righteousness will be hated by the world, which we're told several times in Scripture, specifically by the Lord himself, who tells us that the world will hate your righteousness and they will persecute you for it. We are reminded of that all throughout Scripture. And if that is a scary thought, which it it certainly can be, I understand the fear, and that fear is going to make us ashamed. I don't want to face that persecution. I don't want to suffer. I don't want the world to hate me. And and then we pick verses out of the Bible like, oh, there's that verse that says, I'd be all things to all men for the sake of Christ so that all could be saved. So I'm just going to bend over backwards to never offend anybody with truth and just live peaceably with all people, which also, by the way, is a Bible verse. Seek to live peaceably with all people. So I'm going to grab some Bible verses that, that accommodate my inability or lack of desire to offend people with truth by not sharing the gospel with them and then calling it, well, my life is a testimony. Of course your life is a testimony, but what is a testimony of? It has to be a testimony of the things you say, which has to be the gospel. And so... There's this fear that is in us that I don't want to offend people. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to be disliked or I don't want to be ridiculed or I don't want to face persecution and I don't want to suffer or what some motivation. Maybe I know some people just don't like to have moments where there's not peace in life. There are people who just desire peace. There are people who desire all. I mean, we all have different desires and those and our core fear as people is ultimately the opposite of our greatest desire. So we all have a core desire that we seek to experience in our lives. It's a core desire of our personality and our greatest fear is to not get that. And so whatever prevents us from being obedient is this fear that this core desire of our personhood is not gonna be met if I talk about Jesus or I live for Jesus, or I'm obedient to Jesus because I know what these people in my life or those people in my life or these people in the world are gonna think of me and how they're gonna respond. And I don't wanna face that ridicule. I don't wanna face that suffering. I don't wanna face that persecution. And it could be minor suffering, just people like ignoring you or blowing you off. Well, you know what? If you're thinking, ah, who cares if someone just blows me off and ignores me and walks away from me as I share the gospel? Well, some people's core desire is to be liked by everybody. So to be blown off for sharing the gospel actually is a terrifying, thing for some people and that will prevent them from being obedient so our suffering can come in a variety of different ways a variety of different levels and intensities and and my point is that it can be scary to be obedient because it can be hard to face what we know are going to be the consequences of choosing to follow christ in a world that doesn't love him And this world is not going to become more and more accommodating to Jesus. This world is going to become less and less accommodating to the gospel truth, which makes is going to make our obedience more and more noticeable, and it's going to create us it's going to create in us it's going to make us larger targets for persecution. We saw this in the first century, just after Jesus ascended, and the apostles started spreading the gospel, and the church started growing, Christianity 
grew at such a rapid pace in the first century that Nero, the emperor of Rome, decided to burn down half the city. And he's like, if I burn down the city, I get to rebuild it the way that I want and easy blame the Christians. They're the biggest, fastest rising religion in the world. If we blame them, we can kill most of them. I don't like them. And so the growth of that came from the gospel in the early church was so prominent and so renowned and so obedient and so sacrificial and so Christ-like that it, instead of having one Jesus who was gathering thousands of people to follow him, Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended and said, I'm going to make all of you like me. He made the church like him. The first century church, just years after Jesus' ascension, was so much like Christ, so sacrificial, so obedient, so godly, so Christ-like, that instead of having one Jesus who's disrupting the, the culture, there were thousands of Jesuses in the church. And it... and. Nero was so evil. He's like, I can't, I can't take this. This has got to end. And he, sacri- or he, he persecutes the Christians. Their obedience and Christ-likeness put a target on their back. That may happen to you individually. It may not. I don't know. Suffering doesn't have to be so extreme. I'm not saying that, hey, if we're all just strong Christians, then the government would recognize how... Christ like we are and it would be so opposite to what the government thinks the culture should be that the government will start jailing Christians and killing us. And I'm not saying that. I mean, that could happen. I don't know. But that's so extreme. And we tend to think of suffering as that's extreme. People in China can't have church like we're having right now. They got to meet in basements quietly with a candle and they can't let anyone find out they're worshiping Jesus or they're in big trouble with their government. You can't go over to China right now and say, I'm a Christian missionary here to share the gospel of people. They'll kick you out. I know people who go into China with one particular mission to share the gospel of Christ, but they can't do it as missionaries. So they go as business owners and they go and they, and they start businesses in these different places that don't accept Christianity, will not even allow you to be Christians in their culture. And they'll start a business and they have to operate that business actually intentionally really well. So the business has to stay in business. So it has to be an operable business that actually works. So that they can continue to live there. So that they can share the gospel of Christ. That's their sacrifice. And they are one wrong word away from being thrown in jail for life. That sounds so extreme. And that's what we tend to think about when we think of suffering. But listen, there are a variety of sufferings. And what scripture is teaching us, what we're being told here is it doesn't matter what the suffering, the aim is obedience. And if we're biblically convicted that way, we'll do it, no matter what it costs. But note something, what Paul says in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, this is done by the power of God. It is not your power that works in you. It is not your will that works in you. It is not your strength or your courage or your fearlessness or your boldness or even your obedience that is work when you are willing to live a biblically convicted life. It is God's power through God's gospel in you that works. Meaning your obedience, your righteousness, your convictions are the continual work of God's gospel powerfully manifesting himself through you for his glory in your suffering, just as he did, just as God did through his son, Jesus. And this is why Paul says in Romans eight seventeen, 
We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided. So what does our heirship depend on? This provision. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Again, scary to realize that the gospel that saves us requires from us a life that looks like the gospel has saved us, which also means that our life will look like the life of the one who saved us, Jesus, a life of suffering for righteousness. And if that is scary, we not only have this encouragement that it is God's power that enables us to do so, but we have Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 1.5, which says, For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Christ himself is not only the means by which we are able to sacrifice and be obedient, which leads to our suffering, but Christ is also the means by which we are able to endure that suffering. Because just as much as he produces our righteousness, he comforts us with himself by his spirit in us to enable us to continue, to keep going, to endure, trusting in his eternal promise as our guarantee that our present sufferings are worth the eternal reward, therefore giving us peace in our daily decision to obey him. And we see this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, the comfort of Christ, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Who labor? What labor? Who, all who labor? All who have jobs? Is this only for people who do construction and trade work? Because that's, that's what a laborer is. No, he's talking about the labor of work, of living, the difficulty of living. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Meaning our labor isn't sufficient enough. We need Christ to carry the burden for us. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The only time in all of the gospels that Jesus talks about his own heart, and what does he call himself? Gentle and lowly. Telling us what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians 1.5, that with the difficulty that comes from obedience also comes the comfort of the Lord himself. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is not saying that it is easy. He's saying, for you, if you come to me, it will be easier for you than it was for me. He took the hardest part out of the gospel for us so that our burden, when we come to him, would be light. And our burden is to follow in his footsteps. Our burden is to be obedient in response to the grace we've been given. Our burden is to live obediently without the shadow over top of us that says, if you don't live obediently, you die. That's the burden. Be obedient or you go to hell. That's a burden. And what Christ says, if you come to me, I remove the burden. 
No longer is obedience now because you've come to me. Obedience is no longer the requirement that gets you into heaven. Obedience is now the joyful response you get to live out because I've already saved you. I've already guaranteed that eternal life. I've already secured that promised land. And now obedience is an act of worship, no longer an act of salvation or an act of justification. Now, verse 8 ends with God, and Paul picks up from there in verse 9 to expand on the work of God to reveal why and how our obedience can even be a reality for sinful humans by expressing God's grace and goodness to cause the gospel that saves us. He says of God in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's sovereign election and sovereign power to apply his elective purposes permeate this verse. Verse 9 leaves us, people, out of the gospel and explicitly states that the entirety of the gospel is the work of God. This verse says God saved us, God called us to a holy calling. Then Paul clarifies that we did nothing by saying that it is not because of our works. Then he says it was God's own purpose, God's own grace, and God gave us those things in Christ, and God did this before the ages began. Or as Ephesians 1.4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There is literally nothing we do here in this text, in verse 9. It is all God's work, all God's plan, all God's will, all God's fulfillment. And Ephesians 2, 9 says that this is, it is this way so that none of us could boast in any single point concerning our salvation or our justification so that God would receive all the glory which is only appropriate since there is nothing we could have done to be saved in our totally depraved state of sin prior to our salvation. So why does Paul mention the sovereignty of God in this text so that we would truly understand the gospel that it is not our work and if the gospel was not our work but simply a gift we received from God by his grace that was applied to our hearts by the regenerative work of the spirit to impose God's saving will into you against your will a will that hated God then that means that the life we live after we are justified is a life that is also just as dependent on God. So Paul reveals God's sovereignty in our justification to remind us that the gospel is not just our justification, but that the gospel is also our sanctification, which continues to work, as he says in verse 8, by the power of God. So this, the whole point of that, verse 9, to show God's sovereignty in verse 9 is to tell Christians that the same gospel power that justified you is the same gospel power that is sovereignly working in your sanctification. The difference now is you experience God's sovereignty in such a profoundly unique way that you didn't before justification because now you have God himself existing within you, dwelling in you by his spirit. 
who enlightens your mind to truth, who opens your eyes and your ears and your heart and your mind and fills you with Christ's likeness and righteousness. So now we have a new perception, a new reality. We're a new creation. We understand God. We understand ourselves. We understand the culture. We understand the world. We have discernment. We have the gifts of the spirit. We have the mind of God himself, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that the, the spirit of God understands the depths of the mind of God and only the spirit of God understands those things. And that spirit is in you. Now, do we get to understand what the Spirit understands fully? No. He doesn't reveal the fullness of God's knowledge because God's knowledge is infinite. And so we can't, in our finite bodies, and our finite minds, can't contain infinite knowledge. So he reveals himself more and more every day to the Christian as we grow. That's part of our sanctification. That's the gospel and the power of God in the gospel being applied to your life every day as you learn and you grow more and more. And then there's going to be a day when we're in heaven or in eternity in the presence of Christ and God reveals more of his glory, more of his nature, more of his character, more of himself, moment after moment after moment. And that goes on without end forever. And that's why we have eternity. Because it takes eternity to understand infinity. An infinite God requires an eternal amount of time to reveal himself. And then we get to verse 10. Paul says, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the question is, what has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus? He says, which now has been manifested. So what is the which? What has now been manifested? The answer is in verse 9, God's own purpose and grace. God's own purpose and grace has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and life, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The mystery is finally revealed. All of those Old Testament Christophanies or Old Testament manifestations of Christ appearing all led up to this moment when Christ was revealed in his human form for eternity. God's purpose from before he created the world was that sin would enter the world. Did you hear that? God's purpose before the world began, was that sin would enter the world and he would save us from it and from its result, which is death. So that, so he does this, so that he would be able to, we would be able to understand the fullness of his nature, a God who was full of grace and mercy. So God's own purpose was grace, according to verses nine and 10. And grace is best seen in salvation, And salvation requires sin. So sin was always God's ordained plan for the world. Now that should satisfy that common question that many people ask, why would God ever allow sin to enter the world in the first place? So that he could show his elect his grace. And the grace received by his elect is even more profoundly revealed when we see the consequences of those who do not receive grace. And you get that from Romans 9. And the fullness of God's power and the fullness of God's purpose in his grace is ultimately revealed in the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And then Paul then tells us that Jesus, who appeared, 
to fulfill God's plan and to show his grace, how does that grace revealed? He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So if God's purpose doesn't sit well with the believer, that God would ordain sin just so that he could conquer sin and be the savior, if that makes you think that God is some sort of megalomaniac, some crazy dude, or he's just unfair, then that concern is answered in this text by revealing that the product of God's purpose to ordain sin, so to save us from sin, produces something we could not have enjoyed nearly as much without sin, and that is immortality. What is immortality without mortality? If everyone is immortal because sin doesn't exist, then immortality is not achieved by God's grace, and we would not have known the fullness of his mercy. But because of his purpose to ordain sin and then his solution to save us through the appearing of Christ, we now can fully grasp the grace and mercy of God thus magnifying his glory all the more through our sanctification in Christ and his gospel. That is how the gospel continues to work in our sanctification. To reveal the nature of God. I mean, think about this. Before you were saved or the moment you got saved, imagine if someone said to you, oh, you just got saved? Can I just tell you something really quick? God ordained all the sin that exists. That brand new baby Christian is going to go, whoa, 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 what? That person, it probably, in most cases, is not mature enough spiritually, hasn't grown enough, hasn't been sanctified enough to necessarily understand that truth. Now, by God's grace, they might believe that or understand that. But that kind of comment to a brand new Christian is going to sound crazy because there are so many other doctrinal truths that are required to know, you're required to know in order for that to even make sense. So you can see how this truth is gospel truth and is part of your continued growth and sanctification. The gospel is at work in your life in a way that as we grow in our sanctification, we understand the gospel better. And the gospel itself is revealed to us more and more. We understand it better and then we can apply it more. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Efficiently and effectively in a way that reveals the gospel to the people around us. Not just unbelievers so they can see Christ in our good works and in our obedience and in our faithfulness and our righteousness and our, as the gospel continues to grow us, but also to other Christians to encourage them, to strengthen them, to motivate them, to, to support them, to carry their burdens. The gospel never stops working. It doesn't just justify us. It continues to work in this life and it will continue to work eternally as our salvation is secured for an infinite amount of time. Therefore, because of all that, because of that powerful working of the gospel that never ends, we go back to verse 8 and we're reminded of the command, the application of this text. We ought not to be ashamed, neither of Christ or of his gospel, because in it we are eternally satisfied and pleased by the peace we have in relationship with God. The only appropriate response to this gospel of grace in Christ is that we ought to love God. 
It's the only appropriate response to being saved. To seeing the gospel justify us is that we love him. And then how do we live out the gospel in our sanctification? By loving him. And why would I focus on love as the thing you should do? Because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 to 38. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It is the most important commandment because from it, from loving God, will come all other obediences. The first, the reason Jesus calls it the first command, it's not only the greatest command because loving God is the best thing you could experience because to love God means you've been loved by God, right? Jesus said, you love me because I first loved you. The only reason we can love God is because he first loved us. So to love God means you're being loved by God and there's nothing in existence that's possibly better than being loved by God. And when we say loved, we mean loved so well that he's willing to sacrifice himself for us. So we don't just know love, we experience love. So to love God is the greatest commandment because it's the greatest gift you could ever have to love God. Because it means you're being loved by God. So it's not only the greatest command because of that, it's the first command, meaning you can't do obedience without loving God. To obey God is to love God. To disobey God is to not love God. Super simplified. I think there's more to it than that. But that's a nice little equation for us to understand. To love God is to obey. To not love God is to disobey. Or we could turn that around and say to obey is to love God. To disobey is to not love God. So when you disobey... You wouldn't say, I don't love God anymore. Of course you do, because your love for God is secured by Christ. But you're not acting out that love. You're not experiencing that love. You're not, you're not doing love. So by not doing the first commandment, loving God, you can't do any other commandment. You can't obey any command if you don't first obey the first command, which is to love God. So from love comes obedience. So the only appropriate response to this idea of the gospel not only justifying us, but continuing to work in our life, is that we love God. And because of Christ, we know that. And because of Christ, we can do that. Because of Christ, we get that. Because of Christ, we love God. And because of Christ, and because we love God, we can obey God. And in our obedience, let's be honest, obedience feels good. And disobedience feels bad. How many of you people disobey God Maybe in the moment of disobedience, it feels good, right? Like you ever get just maybe, I'm going to reveal my sinful heart here. You ever just get so angry, you just kind of burst out in this explosion of anger? In that moment, why do you burst out in anger? Because it feels good. In the moment, it feels right. It feels like this is the thing to do. And you're like, rah, and you scream and yell and you get angry. And, but moments later, you're like, oh, I feel terrible. The times that I've yelled at my kids, almost every single time, you can ask them yourselves, almost every single time I've yelled, I mean like yelled, yelled, like exploded on my kids in anger, I apologize to them. And then clarify that they still disobeyed. But I apologize to them for my disobedience. And they say, don't copy me. Don't copy my outbursts of anger. I do think there are appropriate times for anger to be shown, righteous indignation for sin, even with your children. I think there are appropriate ways and times But usually, if I know that my outburst of anger was a sinful outburst of anger, I apologize. And I tell my kids, don't copy that. 
because I immediately feel bad about it. Because sin doesn't feel good. You know that. As a Christian, you know that sin doesn't feel good. You hate that feeling. It reminds me of this stuff. I'm taking this little supplement. It's this black, it looks like black tar. And I'm not joking. It looks like black tar. It comes in a little jar. It's called Shilajit. And it's like, <laughs> it's this, it's, it's compressed and decomposed plant matter from the Himalayan mountains, specifically from the Himalayans. And they scoop the stuff up and it turns into this black tarry stuff and they put it in little jars and they sell it to you and they say, here's all the health benefits of it. I've been taking it for like a month. I'll be, t- I'll be honest with you. The effects are completely non-existent. <laughs> I, have, I have felt no different from it. I even saw this ad. Now listen, when I see, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who falls for ads. I don't go, oh, that's what happens if I buy that? Like I am so skeptical and so cynical. I watch an ad, I'm like, you're lying to me. I know that right off the bat. I don't even need to know what you're telling me. You're lying to me. I know that. How are you lying to me? So I saw this ad for it. So I'm like, I'm not one of those people who just buys things because the ad tells me. I went and researched it and I'm looking at like medical research on this stuff and they're like, yeah, there are legitimately like great benefits to this stuff. And I'm like, okay, and is it safe? Like, yeah, totally safe, just as long as you do it this way. I'm like, okay, make sure you buy it in this way or this kind because then it's, so I'm like, okay, I'm researched, sounds good. But the ad was like, do you want to be a big, strong man? Do you want huge muscles in a month? Like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. I really do. I'm going to take this stuff. Anyways, the reason I bring that up (laughs) Is because I take this little, and they come with a little wooden stick, like a little baby, um, you know, um, you know those tongue suppressors or whatever. Uh, and, and you just scoop out a tiny little bit off, and it pulls out, and it's thick, and it streams like cheese off a pizza, you know. And and then you got to put it, you got to like scrape it off of it with my mouth, and then I, it, you have to put it under your tongue so it absorbs faster. And then I look at my mouth, and my mouth is just caked in black tar. And I do this twice a day. <laughs> if you ever see me, my teeth are just like black. You're like, uh, some shilajit today. So I, I bring that up because when I take this stuff, I think about sin every day, twice a day at least. Because that stuff to me, like that is the visual representation of sin for me. When I dip that stick in there and I put it in my mouth, it feels and tastes like sin. And so <laughs> and. And, and so then I see how sin, and it makes you think, this is how sin affects us. Sin, like, gets everywhere, right? And when that stuff goes in my mouth, that black tar stuff just gets all over my mouth. Now, it comes out pretty easy, and I just take a drink of water, and it goes away, and it's fine. But it, it's just, it's a visual representation to me of what sin does, of what sin is, of how how impactful sin becomes. And yet we have this great promise from God in Christ that the gospel continues to work in deterring us from sin and causing our obedience and creating in us a desire to obey, which comes from loving God. Meaning, confidence in God's sovereign purpose to achieve his gospel through his ordination of sin in this world assures us that God is in control. And knowing he is fully in control of all things, including our will, gives us assurance that this salvation we currently embrace will be fulfilled eternally in glory as he promised. So what I'm saying is, 
If he promised that his purpose was to save us. And he did. Then we can be sure that his purpose to eternally secure us is also guaranteed. Thus giving us confidence and boldness to love him through obedience. Knowing that the following suffering will be worth it. And our obedience will be rewarded. With a crown of glory. A crown that we will throw back at his feet to declare that he alone, that Christ alone has done it. And the glory is all his, which will not stop him from sharing his eternal, infinite glory with us. Because he's gracious. That is the power of the gospel realized in the appearing of Christ. And the fullness of that gospel power will be fulfilled when he appears again at his second coming, which we will look at next week. Let's pray. We depend on you, Father. We depend on you for your gospel to continue to work in our sanctification. We depend on you for obedience. And, and for any of us who think, okay, I gotta work hard at being obedient now, remind us, no, no, that's not the aim. That's not the aim. Oh, I gotta suffer. I gotta suffer. No, that's not the aim. Well, I gotta obey so that I can suffer. No, that's not the aim. Remind us, that's not the aim. We work hard at obedience, but our aim is to love you. That love will show up in obedience, and we will have to work hard at obedience, but our aim is to love you. And in loving you, we will want to satisfy you and please you with a life that looks like the life you meant to create in us. Give us your grace as we all endure the difficult journey of growth. And remind us of the goodness of your gospel and the power of your gospel to continue to work. And give us, in our effort to live out that gospel today, give us constant a constant reminder of the powerful impact of your gospel that gives us eternal assurance of our hope in Christ so that we can endure today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.